I realize Christmas has passed uh, for now, but its gift still sustains our lives, so hang with me. Uh, One of my favorite lines in Luke's Christmas story belongs to the angel who announced to Mary about Jesus, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And then Luke spends the rest of his gospel announcing that kingdom. The inaugural address involves John the baptizer and Jesus and a dove and water and a voice, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. The kingdom of God begins. You belong. It starts You're loved. It even includes, I like you. You're my son, the beloved with you. I'm well pleased. My daughter, Mariah, she's the 10-year-old fifth grade delight. We have this occasional uh, sort of litany together. Uh, She'll say, Dad, what's one plus one? And I'll answer, of course, correctly, two. And I'll say to her, Rai Rai, what's dad plus Mariah? And she'll say, love. And then she'll ask, dad, do you love me? And I'll say, of course I do. And then she'll say, but do you like me? And then I tickle her. The kingdom of God announces it's both. I love you. And I like you. For the next several months, we're going to be meandering our way through the Gospel of Luke all the way up until Easter. I'm calling it On the Way with Luke. Uh, If you want to spend some of your devotional time in Luke's Gospel over the next several months, there could be some cool spirit integration between your life in the chair with the ottoman and our life together in a sanctuary and a screen. Luke always pointing, Luke always uncovering, Luke always highlighting, Luke always announcing the kingdom, the kingdom to which there is no end. I asked my friend Tatum, Tatum and her friend Celia, Celia was singing uh, with us earlier, they were sitting on the front lawn at Pillar on Wednesday in 33 degree temperatures as if it was spring. I asked Tatum if she would read for us from N.T. Wright, a British theologian, and one of the ways he tries to describe the kingdom. Listen to this. New life, forgiveness, new hope and power were opening up like spring flowers after a long winter. A new age had begun in which the living God was going to do new things in the world. I love that. New life, new hope, new things in the world. And can I be honest? Can we be honest? We need new life, new hope, new things in the world. My heart broke, and maybe yours did too, by the scenes in D.C., our nation's capital, earlier this week. New life, new hope, new things in the world. Cases are still rising in plenty of places. Some kids are back to school, others still online. The stock market's doing great, but unemployment's not so great. New life, new hope, new things 
in the world. And that's just the stuff on the soil of this country. What about the rest of the world? Exhausted by violence and oppression and systems of injustice of every kind, new life, new hope, new things in the world. That's what Luke is announcing. That's the kingdom. So listen with me. This is chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea and Herod was ruler in Galilee and his brother Philip was ruler in Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias was ruler in Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went throughout the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of the prophecy of Isaiah, a voice crying out in the wilderness, make way for the Lord. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked ways made straight, the rough places made plain. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds who came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you of the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. God is able to turn even these stones into children to Abraham. The axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, therefore, is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowd came to him and asked, what what should we do? And John said, whoever has two coats must give to anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to him to be baptized and asked, what should we do? And he said, do not collect money that is not prescribed for you. The soldiers came to John and asked, what should we, what should we do? And John said, do not extort money with threats and false accusations. Be satisfied with your wages. The people were filled with expectation and were wondering as to whether John was the Messiah. And John answered all of them saying, I baptize you with water. There is one more powerful than I who is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal who who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into the granary, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Herod, who had been debunked by John because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and the other evil things that he had done, shut John up in prison. Then after the crowd had been baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven opened, and the Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came, You are my son, 
the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. If you want to hit pause now and find it, read it, reread it, and then, of course, come back. New life, new hope, new things in the world. That's the kingdom. The, the kingdom which clears our masked, fogged glasses to see what's really real. The kingdom calls, the kingdom confronts, the kingdom claims. That's how I want to spend the next few minutes. The kingdom calls. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. No quid pro quos, no addendums, no other way around it. The kingdom calls us to repent. John out of wilderness hiding, starts shouting, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. The kingdom of God expects us to change, to reorient our lives from whatever version of fulfillment and satisfaction, loyalty and allegiance, vision and goal and idea of the good life. It calls us to reorient our lives from those to the Father who reigns, the Son who rules, the Spirit who has authority. To repent means to change your mind. Every time I hear the word, I'm confronted by the question, when was the last time I changed my mind? I come by the phrase stubborn Dutchman honestly. I dig in my heels. I insist on my own way. And frankly, I know you well enough to know you do too. I change. I don't need to change. I don't have to change. Luke is not as confident as you are. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. A couple of things about repentance. Repentance is preceded by God's action. This is Luke chapter 3. There are two chapters that precede this one, all about what God is doing. The barren bears, the virgin conceives, the mute start to sing. God acting, God doing, God making possible what was otherwise impossible. The call to repent is not a call to get ourselves good with God, but rather God's invitation to us to get on mission with him. To change. God has been acting. God has been doing. God has been making a way. Reorient your lives towards him. It's sort of almost humorous to me. John goes on with his call to repent and then tells him a little bit of what it looks like. They're asking, what should we do? And then he says, so with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. Good news? I got to change his good news? It's good news because you're invited into something more. The call to repent pre is preceded by God's action. Repentance is not to get ourselves good with God. It's God's way of getting us in on his mission with him. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. The call to repent is not because you're so bad. And God is so mad. And so disappointed and so upset and so frustrated by your lackluster faith and your weak determination and your unwilling commitment. Repentance is not because you're so bad, it's because there's so much more. 
So much more to life, to flourishing, to thriving, to beauty and truth and love. So change. We, 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 we're, we're so quickly consumed by our myopic vision and can only see what's right in front of us. Basically, we, we, we reduce ourselves to the basic instinct of self-preservation, which we extrapolate out to self-expression and self-actualization, which is basically all I care about is me, myself, and I which is really boring after a while, no offense. The call to repent is the call to more. Uh, Frederick Beekner, I think he's getting after this very thing in a book titled Telling Secrets. It's kind of long, but it's worth every word. I've come to believe that by and large, the human family all has the same secrets, which are both very telling and very important to tell. They're telling in the sense that they tell what is perhaps the central paradox of our condition. That what we hunger for perhaps more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness. And that that is so often just what we also fear more than anything else. It's important to tell at least from time to time the secret of who we truly and fully are, even if we tell it only to ourselves. Because otherwise we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are and little by little come to accept instead the highly edited version which we put forth and hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. It's important to tell our secrets too because it makes it easier that way to see where we've been in our lives and where we're going. It's important to tell our secrets too because that way we can see where we've been in our lives and where we're going, where we're going, where we're going. The call to repent is an invitation to where we're going, to become full, whole, beautiful, alive. Bear fruit, worthy of repentance. The kingdom calls, the kingdom confronts. Some of you are going to want to fast forward the next several minutes. I guarantee to make you uncomfortable. The kingdom confronts every political power and religious authority and our allegiance to them. Luke sets the stage for us of this inaugural announcement in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Luke doesn't include Tiberius and Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas just to set the stage so that we can locate ourselves in time and place. He's announcing a confrontation. Tiberius was brutal. Uh, Pliny the Elder referred to him, I think charitably, as the gloomiest of men. And for 100 years, Rome had been ruling, and now Tiberius places Pilate in Galilee, the region where Jesus and John were, in order to exact Tiberius' reign there. And Annas, well, Herod, Herod was awful. He was like a half-leader, but he was still terrible. And his brother Philip messed up. And Annas and Caiaphas, they were the religious version of the same corruption in the political sphere. And John announces a confrontation. The kingdom confronts every political power and religious authority and our allegiance to them. 
and the people hear it. They heard John say, their eyes shall see salvation. And so they come running. They've been exhausted by the oppression. They're exhausted by the division. They're exhausted by the corruption. They're exhausted by the animosity. Sound familiar? And John announces a new way, so they come running. And they say, what should we do? Which is really interesting because it's the same thing the crowd said after the Spirit descended at Pentecost. What should we do? Here they are. What, the crowd says, what should we do? And John says, justice. Anyone who has two coats must give to anyone who has none. Whoever has food must do likewise. The tax collectors come to be baptized by John and they ask, what should we do? And John says, don't collect money that is not prescribed for you. John says, justice. The soldiers, probably Herod's soldiers, they come to him too. They ask too, what should we do? And John says, justice. Don't extort money with threats and false accusations. Be satisfied with your wages. The, the teachers come too. I'm now imagining, you can imagine with me. The teachers come too. What should we do? And John says, let every student in your classroom be known, seen, heard, and loved. And the doctors, I'm still imagining, the doctors come too. And John says, don't treat people for their diagnosis, but for the image of God in them. The business owners come too. The business owners come too, and they say, well, what should we do? And John says, take care of your employees and allow for the flourishing of the common good. Justice. Justice. Justice is a loaded term, so often reduced to human rights, as if basic human rights is justice. It includes human rights, but it's so much more. It's the inbreaking of God's kingdom in our lives, justice. The kingdom confronts, and our participation in that confrontation is the pursuit of justice where it's right in front of us where it's closest to us. If you want to get in on the big justice action in the world, Israel-Palestine, race in America, it will not be by leapfrogging what's right in front of you, the relationships closest to you. That's the way towards it. Uh, N.T. Wright again in a book titled Luke for Everyone. You should buy it. If these commands were obeyed, these commands for justice they would demonstrate that people meant business. None of these things happen by chance. They only occur when people have genuinely repented of the small-scale injustices which turn society sour. The kingdom confronts every political power and every religious authority and our allegiance to them. The kingdom claims. The kingdom claims you're a child of God. If you announce Jesus as Lord and you acknowledge him as Savior, you're adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. All of this, this, this call to repentance and this confrontation for justice happens around the waters of baptism. John is out in the region around the Jordan calling for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism was a Jewish, Jewish ritual primarily meant for Gentiles to convert to Judaism, to sort of clean themselves up, to sort of get themselves okay to become Jews, so to speak. 
But John isn't so discriminatory. John wants everyone, all of Israel, to come to the waters of baptism, to get themselves right. Baptism symbolized a freedom from slavery to sin, even as the people of God had been set free from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and were passed through the waters of the Red Sea out onto the Freedom Road and then, as they, and then set free for a promise. As they entered the Promised Land, they walked through the waters of the Jordan River and, to find the promise. It's a freedom from a slavery to sin and a freedom for a life filled with promise, which begs the question, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Freedom from sin? The sinless one? Freedom for promise? The one who is the promise? Jesus doesn't walk through the waters of baptism to be cleansed from sin and to be set free for a promise. Jesus walks through the waters of baptism to associate himself with us, with our weakness, our brokenness, our sin, to show us the way towards promise. And in that way, in his associating himself with us, in his identifying himself with us, we too can be called sons and daughters of God. The announcement of Jesus you are my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased, does not happen until Jesus associates himself with us through baptism. Uh, Craig Barnes, president of Princeton Theological Seminary, great preacher, pastor, uh, puts it like this. Why would Jesus get baptized? It's in the moment of his identification of our futility the futility of our situation, trying to get life cleaned up in baptism. It's in the moment of that identification with us that the Father in heaven gets so excited that he rips back the skies and says, this is my beloved. Not until. Jesus doesn't have the designation of being the beloved until he's identified with the futility of the human condition. An identification that is so total and complete that we can say the Father is saying that about us. Because Jesus is identified with us, we are the beloved with whom God is so pleased. Dad, do you love me? Of course I love you, but do you like me? You're my child. You're beloved. I like you. That's the kingdom. The kingdom claims us as sons and daughters of God. The, the one who belongs, Jesus Christ, invites us into belonging. The one who is the beloved calls us lovely. The one with whom God is well pleased holds us in his pleasing embrace. So I'm thinking about Tim and Janet Howell fighting for their lives. Cancer, it's not like a grapefruit that you could just find and take out. It's like a bag of rice that's been spilled on the floor. You're my daughter. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. I'm thinking about the Borsmas grieving the loss of Connie 
celebrating her, the stunning gift of her life. I'm thinking about Chris Grigo doing the same with her beloved son, Ronnie, who's taken way too soon. I'm, I'm thinking about the Kleises gathering in different parts of the country with their hearts heavy for their husband, dad, grandpa. You're my children. I love you. With you, I'm well pleased. I'm thinking about the, the guy I ran past going opposite directions out by Windmill Island around New Year's. I shouted out, Happy New Year's. And as soon as I said it, I thought, what was I thinking? I know this guy. I know this is the year he's going to say goodbye to his beloved. You're my son. I love you. With you, I'm well pleased. I'm, I'm thinking about the mom listening to the sermon in her living room by herself with an ache in her heart and a lump in her throat for the child who's a long way from home, and I'm not talking geographically. You're my daughter. I love you. With you, I'm well pleased. I'm thinking about the young man who's battling a hidden enemy no one knows about, no one wants to talk about, and he doesn't want to tell you about. You're my son. I love you. With you, I'm well pleased. I'm thinking about you. You with the story I don't know and can't tell. You with the pain I'm not sure about. And you hope nobody finds out about. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I even like you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.